Welcome to Short-Term Rental Investing 101. Thanks for joining. I'm Amir Dukic, founder and CEO of Rabu and the host of this podcast. Today, we're chatting about short-term rental insurance. Nick Massey with Proper Insurance joins me and we discuss exactly what short-term rental insurance is, if you need it, and how it differs from your traditional homeowner's insurance. Enjoy. Okay, guys. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, my name is Amir Dukic. I'm the CEO of Rabu. Rabu, you guys hopefully know, is a platform that helps real estate investors find, buy, and operate short-term rentals. Uh, we have a data platform where you can find your next short-term rental anywhere in the United States. Uh, and also have a property management arm that if you need property management help, we can manage those uh, for you if you need that help. Uh, extremely excited today because I'm a short-term rental investor myself and I always have questions about insurance. Um, do I, can I get away with, you know, my traditional homeowner's insurance or do I need a short-term rental specific insurance? Um, so I'm really excited to spend some time with Nick Massey today, who's the proper insurance to really talk about um, what it takes, what, what, what I really need to get covered as a, as a short-term rental investor with a short-term rental portfolio. So Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, yeah excited as so many people to attend. Insurance is not always the most favorite topic, but we'll try and make this as interactive and, and fun as possible for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say that, Nick, I just want to kind of uh, restate it one more time. And I'll keep stating this, guys. Um, please send questions our way. Uh, use the chat feature, send questions that way. We have two team members from Rabu here, Chris and Nicole, uh, who are going to answer uh, a lot of the questions, but we'll also save some questions for the end. And we also have team members from Proper Insurance who are here including Betty to answer some of your questions. So please send them our way throughout this webinar. Uh, the way the webinar will work is that um, I, I have a preset of number of questions that I myself as, a, as an investor have for, um, for Nick and, and the proper team about short-term rental insurance. But then we've also reserved some time towards the end of the webinar for really a lot of Q&A from you guys to answer your questions. We already have some great questions coming in uh, that we got from, from Twitter. Um, prior prior to this call from some of our Twitter users, uh, some really interesting stuff, including what happens if uh, you get uh, a dog bites somebody at your property. Uh, so we have some really good stuff coming there uh, from from Twitter questions, but please send questions uh, your way from, from you guys as well. So to get started, Nick, uh, can you kind of just tell us what exactly short-term rental specific insurance is? Yeah, so it's it's, it's a lot more complex than just short-term rental insurance. So from a high level, when it comes to insurance form language, you have what's called ISO. And ISO is what standardizes the insurance language. So you basically have four categories. You have homeowners, whether that's a single family home or a condo, you have landlord, single family home or condo, you have commercial, which is very broad scope, you know, any type of commercial entity or business operation covered under commercial. And then you have vacant property policies. The problem is vacation rentals, you kind of need all concepts of all four, right? You have periods of vacancy. You know, we hope you don't have vacancy, but you're going to, you know, it's just part of it. You might use the property yourself residentially. Uh, so we need to be covered on a homeowner side. You might take in midterm rentals. And so with that, you have to make sure you have more of a landlord concept. And then short-term rentals are defined in insurance as, as a business opportunity. So you need to have commercial. So basically to get a short-term rental policy in the most adequate sense, you need to have all four of those blended together, which is effectively what proper insurance did when we came to market in 2014, is take 
the the best coverages from all of those policies and put them into one package and that is the proper insurance policy so you can go and get a landlord policy that has an endorsement for short-term rental but it's still a landlord policy it's not a short-term rental policy because quite frankly it doesn't exist that's really interesting that i honestly just learned a lot more than i ever knew and so it makes complete sense because you have four different uses of the property and really if, if a short-term rental, you want to have vacancy, right? If your property is fully occupied at all times, you probably are leaving some money on the table because you're not charging the right rate. So you're definitely gonna have some vacancy. It's definitely a business that you're running. So uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate that context. So um, I guess, can you, can you expand upon a, a little bit more upon how this is different from traditional homeowners insurance or even land, land, landowner, landlord insurance? Yeah, so the, the biggest gap in insurance on a regular home policy or a landlord policy, and let's just use the general concept that this is a second home and not your primary residence, uh, where you're renting out like an in-law apartment or something. So obviously a vast majority of the market's going to be second home. So first and foremost, the homeowner's product, just a regular homeowner's policy, is defines occupancy as your residence premises. And that means the place where you primarily reside as your primary home. So there's a gap in coverage, number one. If it's not your residence premises, your coverage could effectively be void. The other glaring gap as a whole between property and liability coverage on a regular homeowner's policy is the business activity exclusion. And that business activity exclusion is also found in a landlord policy as well. So a landlord policy is going to define residency as a tenant, roomer, or border, uh, but it still has a business activity exclusion. So what does that actually mean? Okay, I have short-term rentals. I do have tenants, rumors, and borders. We define that as guests, but uh, how is that a business activity if I'm allowed to do that? The business activity exclusion found in those policies says that any business opportunity, part-time, occasional, or full-time uh, is not covered regardless of profit motive. Okay, so whether you're just trying to break even on the property or um, you are trying to build generational wealth with this portfolio of homes, profit motive doesn't matter. So what is, when does it become a business and when does this exclusion become problematic to these properties? It all comes down to active marketing. So when you're actively marketing your property on the platform and any OTA, you are now engaging in a business, okay? You have an open calendar, 365 days a year. They can stay for a week. They can stay for a couple of days. They can stay for two or three months. That is a business. Where a long-term rental isn't necessarily a business is because you put a listing up to short-term rent your house or long-term rent your house, excuse me, for say 30, it's on the market for 30 days through a real estate agent, a Craigslist or whatever. And somebody books it for 12 months. They're furnishing it themselves. And it has now become their residence premises, right? So that's where this business activity exclusion becomes kind of complex, you know, through it. So those are the biggest, the biggest primary gaps. Um, and then you run into this issue of property entrustment as well. When you entrust your property to somebody else and they maliciously cause damage to your home, those policies are not going to cover you, even if you have a short-term rental endorsement tied to it. Wow. Okay. That, that's a lot to it. A lot more than even I knew. And I know this place really well. Um, it's a very complex structuring of what's going on out there in insurance right now. It, it's, yeah. it can be complicated. Yeah, for sure. 
So I guess let's let's talk about you mentioned some of the OTAs. Some of them market themselves as providing insurance as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Airbnb specifically has a program, um, the air cover uh, program that they kind of um, market as a way for a host to protect themselves. Yeah. Is that sufficient, or you know, does that cover everything you just outlined? Is really it's, truly necessary to be covered? It's not. I mean, it's not actually insurance. Um, it's it's more or less think of it as a guarantee. There's been there's been items that have been you know covered by Airbnb and, and Verbo has a liability product as well for every booking, um, but they're riddled with gaps. You got to think you know if I'm getting this for quote unquote free, what does it really cover? You know what am I mm-hmm. truly getting with it? So I'm not going to come out. I'm not going to I'm not going to bash Airbnb. I'm not going to bash Verbo because. Well, Verbo is a partner of ours, um, but you need to have your own insurance. So what, here's what it really comes down to. It's there and it may or may not respond to a situation. You can do your own independent research and find stories on both sides of the aisle with this. Um, I've seen many of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, basically you're at the mercy of the OTA if they're going to respond to the loss for the most part. But here's the main concept. It is not an insurance policy with your name on it. And if your name's not on the insurance policy, you don't have policy rights, okay? There's state insurance commissioners in all 50 states. They're the ones who make sure that a consumer's policy rights are taken care of effectively and appropriately in a claim situation. And if you're not a named insured on the policy, you don't have policy rights. So that's where having and making sure you have your own insurance uh, yourself is very important versus solely relying on the OTA to try and cover you. And a lot of cities and municipalities have created even further confusion in this concept because they'll say in order to get a permit, you either need to have a million dollars in liability or host on a platform that provides it. That right there is what's causing a lot of confusion where people go, oh, it's fine. I'll just keep my homeowner's policy and then list on Airbnb because now I can get a permit. And if it were up to me writing those, I would do away with the OTA language in the in the permitting requirement for insurance. You just really need to go out and get your own policy, understand it, be comfortable with it, take the time to get educated on what you are and are not covered for so you can effectively manage your risk. Yeah, absolutely. It makes complete sense, especially now as more and more groups are looking at direct bookings. They're, uh, they're mm-hmm. looking at options outside of the OTAs. And obviously, you know, air cover does provide some coverage. But if you start taking bookings outside of any of the existing OTAs, then you really are out of luck if something happens at the property. Yeah. Um, from, your, from your experience with, with, with air cover and, and Verbo's kind of liability insurance, um, but where would the biggest, biggest gap be between what they provide and what you know, proper would provide? I'm really thinking about like on the mm-hmm. asset base level, let's say something, there's a fire at my home or there's some kind of damage at my home. Um, will air cover cover that or is that really kind of more something that's in the wheelhouse of a proper they they claim to um but there was a case that where a 1.6 million dollar home burnt down in california from a guest cause fire um initially airbnb didn't do anything about it um and then they took them to court and went to the news and did all this stuff and then behind the scenes that's when airbnb decided to finally pay something Mm -hmm. now they have the the news report, there's an NDA involved. Airbnb is trying to put a lot of smoke and mirrors in front of this to cover up their tracks from a PR standpoint. Um, 
their policy continues to change. They do add little things to the air cover product, like the excessive cleaning and stuff like that. They've, they've done some things to it to kind of, you know, beef it up a little bit. Um, so it's really tough to keep track of what is and what is not covered. What we get is the insight from our clients who reach out to us and say, okay, I learned the hard way. I had $15,000 in damage caused by X. And not only did Airbnb not cover it, but my home insurer didn't cover it either. Again, do those business activity exclusions and whatnot. And okay, I'm ready to upgrade my coverage so I don't have to go through this again. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about kind of loss of revenue coverage too, right? Cause that's one of the key components that I see as yeah. a benefit of, of uh, working with a group like proper. From my experience, when we have been had success in Airbnb helping us cover or any other OTAs helping us cover damage that was caused by a guest while they were there. Um, we're always kind of left on our own to one, get the, the situation rectified. But a lot mm -hmm. of time there's, there's downtime, right? We have to take the properties offline to make a, to make a repair or uh, do whatever is necessary. We're not getting, that's just a loss of revenue for us. We're not going to ever get see the opportunity to get those units rented out. Is that something that proper could help or proper like group could help? Yeah. So mediate? with proper specifically, our coverage is, is we've custom tailored the language from the standard insurance verbiage to, to reinforce it. So that's better. So what we do that's different than anybody else is we pay actual sustained loss business income with no time limit and it pays at a gross value. Some proper, uh, excuse me, some policies will use what's called loss of rents and that would be more on a modified landlord insurance policy. And loss of rents is capped at 12 months or your limit, whichever comes first and pays a fair market value. So it's not paying you dollar for dollar for your business loss. When it comes to uh, other commercial products that are out there, they do pay lost business income, right? Same as us, actual sustained lost business income. But a lot of times they're going to pay net less expenses or they're going to cap mm -hmm. it at 12 months. So if you have a significant loss, like a, your house burns down, you could very easily be looking at two years to rebuild. So proper, we give you the opportunity uh, to select the limit of insurance that you're most comfortable with. So <clears throat> if you were making gross $50,000 a year on your property, let's say, and you wanted to insure for two years, you simply insure for 100,000 with us. And then that $100,000 limit or pot of money is there to pay you during the, what's called a period of restoration. So we'll use, um, I use an example of guest cause damage uh, at a property of ours, um, higher end home. So during peak season over Christmas, so they were renting out for, uh, you know, I think it was like $2,500 a night is what they typically get. Uh, during this time of year on this large home, they had about $25,000 in guest cause vandalism, which again, is not something covered on these landlord or homeowners policies. So we're responding to that, but they also had about $110,000 in lost business income through the restoration period. So it wasn't the damage caused by the guests that was the big item. It's the loss of revenue, right? And right. You're, if you're out of six figures in revenue due to a claim that takes two or three months to rectify, I mean, that could put a, a lot of folks out of business, right? So in my opinion, next to liability, a loss of income is one of the more important coverage to make sure that you're you know, adequately taken care of on. Absolutely. We've had numerous instances where we've worked with homeowners when we've helped them operate their properties 
that have had insurance uh, with proper. Uh, and it was godsend that they had it in place uh, because I think in that instance, we had a tree that collapsed during a storm. And it was actually here in Charlotte, kind of tree collapsed, you know, da uh, damaged two of the units in the quadplex. Those had to go offline and be based because of the coverage, the owner was able to continue kind of uh, surviving through the time period during which kind of the units were offline. If I remember correctly, they were offline for like three weeks, um, yeah. if not uh, a little bit over a month. And, you know, the, the saving grace there for them as, as an investor was the fact that uh, they, had, uh, they had still had guaranteed revenue coming in while their repairs were being done. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's one of those things that like even, even small, like small things, right? You might only have two, three, four thousand $4,000 in damage. And you might be thinking to yourself, and if you are a proper customer and this has happened, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I got a thousand or a $2,500 deductible. It's not really worth filing the claim. But if you're canceling bookings, that's part of your loss. So your loss might go from $3,000 in damage to 10, 15, $20,000 with loss of business income. And so in a lot of those cases, it is really worth it. I mean, that's why our customers pay additional premium to us. That's why we're more expensive because we're covering all of this stuff for you, right? The money you're losing on lost income in the event of a claim, <clears throat> the additional expenses that aren't picked up by these other carriers to pay your mortgage and your utilities and your monthly streaming services at your property and all these, all these other things that you used to operate. I mean, just having the loss of income protection is, is worth that difference in premium and, and for a lot of folks, right? It's, it can be a, yeah. it can be a lifesaver. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, if I, if I put my investor hat back on, you know, as I buy a property, acquire it, uh, obviously I'm projecting, uh, running revenue projections on data.revenue.com, for example, and see what the revenue potential of the property is. I acquire it. Now, the first thing I want to do is make sure that I make, that my NOI, my net operating income is as high as possible because it's an investment for me. It's a way that I'm trying to create some financial freedom, right? Um, I typically, you know, I, I want to be smart and strategic about where and how I spend my money, right? Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to make sure I furnish it appropriately so I can attract the proper guests. I'm a, you know, you know, do streaming services instead of cable because that's that's wildly adapted now and it's cheaper than just getting cable. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I get I get to the insurance piece, right? And I'm used to homeowners quotes, um, and I know I need to have some kind of insurance, and I, you know. By design or by default, I may defer to go to my homeowner's insurance, just get my traditional homeowner's quote that I might have on my, on my, um, uh, on my primary residence or my long-term rental investment property, um, knowing that that's likely the cheaper of the options to go with because I'm afraid that you know, my short-term rental-specific insurance would be significantly more cost-prohibitive and would reduce my NOI. Um, now, of course, but in the perfect world, I would have it, but you know, I'm kind of trying to mitigate risks. What do yeah. you kind of say to groups who think about it that way? We're trying to mitigate um, some of the the costs through insurance, through going with lesser insurance. Yeah, I mean, you just got to be mindful of what risk you're taking on yourself, right? Because your net operating income, if something is not covered, is going to quickly go to zero, right? And so you have to do that analysis yourself. Every homeowner is different, right? You and I are completely different in how we assess our insurance risk, okay? Like, you know, through this conversation, you know, a lot of folks on here, maybe, maybe a light bulb goes off for you to go, you know what, I'm not comfortable taking on that risk. I didn't realize I was taking on that risk. And 
I don't, I don't want to deal with it. So let's upgrade our, our coverage. The average property in the just the general scope of residential side of things has a claimable thing happen to the property once every 10 years. That's exacerbated by short-term rentals. I would say it's probably once every five to six years, we see our clients probably have something they need to file a claim on. Uh, in a perfect world, you'd never have to use your insurance, right? So it's it's always, no matter what, it's kind of a roll of the dice if you need to, if you're ever going to have it or not. So, I mean, it's always just going to come down to, to where you're comfortable, right? Now, what I like to tell people, and again, we have tons of different clients. And so by no means in this comment, am I, am I trying to mean to offend everybody, but just a little bit of tough love here, whether you're new to the industry or you've been doing this for a long time. So Amir, you go in to look at a property and you're, you're diving into a market and you have your spreadsheet and you're putting everything in. Take the insurance line out of it. If that property, if you had a, a $350,000 mortgage on it, right? And you have 60, 70% occupancy, it's say $250 a night. Things are starting to look pretty good. You're like, oh, it's coming right. up. Yep. I got my, yep. And then I got my management fees and I got all this. But when you break it all down, that property is only going to make $10,000 a year. Are you going to buy it? Probably not. Yeah, depends on the purchase price, but yeah, probably not. Yeah, 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 probably not, right? For the serious investor, somebody who's trying to build generational wealth, the cap rate's not there, the cash on cash return's not there, right? So let's look at another example, okay? Uh, one, you should just make the decision that, that property is not, not a good fit for this marketplace because you're barely going to break even, right? Now, if you're a serious investor and you're looking at that, let's say that property's gross uh, or net revenue is $50,000, okay? It's a great property. It's doing well for you. You're paying a $1,500 a year for insurance and it's basically not covering anything because you have the wrong coverage, right? Right. Now, you come to proper insurance and I quote you and it's $4,000. It's $2,500 more a year. Does that really hinder your business operation to a point that you can no longer operate that vacation rental because you have to have cheap insurance? That's where kind of the tough love comes in. It's like, we really need to assess this. And the first thing people try to cut expenses on on these properties is insurance. Everyone's do what you need to do, but that's the last thing you should cut on because if you're trying to pinch pennies, the last thing you should do is, is go skimp on insurance because if something does happen, you're going to be out way more money at the end of the day. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of folks. It's a tough pill for me to swallow too. I, I got to insure my homes, right? I'm looking out for the bottom dollar. I totally get it. But if I got a $30,000 roof replacement and they're not covering replacement costs of my roof, but they're covering actual cash value, which is pennies on the dollar for a 15-year-old roof, I'm out way more money than the extra expense of a better insurance policy. Yeah, no, uh, completely makes sense. I think, you know, one of our kind of a thesis of what's happening with short-term rental space in general right now is that it's becoming professionalized, right? It's no longer kind of the wild, wild west out there where people are getting away with the bare minimum to just have that property listed. Uh, and I think now is the right time to invest into setting the proper strategies, especially as kind of the market um, is seeing some, 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 some supply and demand, demand imbalances. I think right now it's uh, all about setting yourself up for long-term success by yeah. doing things that are more professional in a professional manner. And, and the insurance market in the last 18 months to two years has been extremely volatile. So we're starting to see a lot of these other policies 
they're not even changing their coverage. They're still offering the same coverage. It's not like they're adding anything and their prices are going up 20, 30, 40%. So um, actually just right before this webinar, I was on the phone with a new potential client um, who is insuring with one of our competitors who's historically rather inexpensive. They do offer short-term rental coverage, but it's got weak points. You know, you can definitely upgrade that through proper. I'm used to seeing that policy in that market for around $1,000 a year. And they just got their renewal and it was 1800. And I came in on my product with same limits of insurance, but a much more comprehensive policy at just shy of $2,300 a year. Right. So these other kids, these other policies due to the volatility of the market, and we're in what's called a hard market right now for insurance, which makes it extremely difficult to get products in some areas. If you're in Florida, you're, you are way too accustomed to what's going on right now um, with the market being so rough. So with a hard market, you're going to see rates increase. Now, as the market begins to soften, rates will not go backwards, but maybe somebody comes out with some coverage enhancements and additions and stuff like that to beef up their policy. Something we do every year, every single year, we're adding coverage to our policies. So, um, you know, we'll be adding things like excessive cleanup uh, to our policy. We'll be adding things like service line uh, protection uh, for your underground pipes and flues uh, for the city sewer septic. So we're always trying to trying to beef up our coverage, even through a hard market like we're in right now. Yeah. Question for you. I mean, this this might be a little bit extreme, but if is it if I'm not going to get the proper or proper insurance coverage, right? Um, the short-term rental specific insurance coverage, does it even make sense to even get a homeowner's coverage uh, insurance for my home a, if I'm going to use it? If you have a short-term rental. Yeah, if you have a mortgage, Yeah, I guess that's a requirement. It's right. a requirement, but it's, so you're really only doing it for the purpose of satisfying right. your mortgage Correct. Uh, mandates. Correct. Correct. And there's some folks out there um, that will talk to, you know, vacation rentals come in all shapes and sizes. So it would be a multi-million dollar property and my premium is going to be, I mean, exorbitant, right? If you're trying to cover a $5 million home. It's not cheap, but their, their current insurance policy might be two or $3,000 a year. <clears throat> but somebody who's very high net worth like that, they're a lot more comfortable taking on that risk, right? It's, it's more or less a drop in the bucket for them. And they're just trying to cover for catastrophic, like total loss fires, right? Right. And uh, basically, you know, those policies that those high net worth individuals end up getting is what's called a basic form policy. So insurance comes in three sizes, basic, broad, and special form. Special form being the best, and that's what we provide. And that's what a lot of our competitors provide too. But you can go get a basic form policy, which covers limited perils like fire, and gives you some liability protection that's also very limited in what it covers. Um, and maybe you're that person, you feel extremely comfortable with that. Yeah, makes complete sense. Interesting. A um, couple of quick fire questions that I have that are still top of mind. And it's still, uh, I encourage everyone to keep sending questions in to see if we have a lot coming in. So please um, send them our way uh, and we'll get to those here momentarily. A couple of quick, quick fire questions, as I was saying, Nick, I think there's a misconception that you need both homeowner's insurance and an S short-term rental specific insurance, like get your insurance from State Farm and get proper insurance. But I guess proper can replace the need for uh, um, you know, your traditional homeowner's insurance. Is that right or am I incorrect yeah, in that statement? That is true, that is true. So our policy specifically is meant to completely replace whatever current product you have 
um, on the property. So we would replace your retail insurance and you wouldn't have to carry other coverages. It is kind of market dependent because uh, the big thing is like in Florida right now, it's really tough to get wind coverage. And I see a lot of questions coming up with wind. So I'm going to take this opportunity to address that in the state of Florida. Great. So um, what a lot of folks end up doing in Florida right now, if your company that you're insured with hasn't gone out of business, you keep your regular homeowner's insurance policy because it has the wind coverage. And then they're buying our policy to cover the liability and property damage you know, side of it, because there is that potential, but the homeowner's product does not cover them for short-term rental exposure. So they do double insure. It's not illegal. It's not against the law. You just if it's a shared loss between us and the other policy, then we split the claim. If they deny the claim and we cover it, then we pay the claim. Um, in terms of what's happening in, in the Florida market with hurricane coverage specifically, uh, it is an absolute nightmare. It's a hot mess. We are totally aware of that. Uh, we are working diligently with our carriers to get more and more acceptance uh, from them to sell more wind insurance. Right now, we have a limited amount of what's called aggregate for wind. Uh, you know, this is the first time I'm talking. I haven't even told my sales staff this yet. I'll have to <laughs> exclusive. Exclusive breaking news. I'll have yep. to tell them when I get out of this meeting. But um, we do have a limited amount of aggregate in most counties in the state of Florida. Uh, but it is a basis on construction type and, and what year was built right now with our carrier in order to provide that. Uh, which is post 2000 construction. And I, I'll have to go back and check the email. I believe we did away with the construction type requirement. I'll double check that. But um, if you have if you have a post 2000 built home in the state of Florida, um, then then we can write wind insurance right now. If you have a home or a condo or a townhouse or a cottage, that is sub $250,000 in total insured value between the building, the contents and the income. I don't have a restriction on wind. Now we're trying to get that limit bumped up where we eliminate the restrictions. Hopefully we can get that bumped up to like 500,000. The average property that we insure in the state of Florida has an insured value of about 480,000. So that would open us up to to a lot to provide to, you know, hopefully provide this wind protection for everybody in that market. But just like everybody else, we're, we're struggling to get the capacity in this hard market um, to fully open up wind. Last year, we got a bunch of aggregate and they said, open up, let's go for it. And we sold out of it in three months. So um, if it is available to you, strike while the iron's hot, because there's no guarantee it's going to be available in two months. So, yeah. I appreciate that context. I know Florida, especially, is difficult with uh, with its proneness to um, natural uh, events. There, uh, the, the hurricanes of the sort. A couple yeah. of kind of um, related questions. So, uh, both from the group, from from the chat, and some that I had myself. But um, as an investor, um, do I need short-term rental-specific uh, insurance if I don't rent out my full property full-time? So. What if I don't rent it full time? What if I only rent out a piece of the property? Like I'm from house hacking, I'm doing an mm -hmm. ADU and not my primary residence. Um, or if I'm doing like a room in my house. And then also yeah. what if I'm doing rental arbitrage? I know there's three pieces to that, but mm -hmm. 
how, how would you speak about that from a, uh, from a need for short-term rental specific insurance? Yeah, let me, let me start with arbitrage because that's going to be the, the fastest one to answer. Uh, so rental arbitrage, you, you are running a business still, you're subleasing. And so basically, in the general sense, you need renter's insurance, right? Because you're a tenant. But you're a tenant that's conducting a business. So we sell basically a commercial renter's insurance policy for arbitrage. Um, it averages around a thousand bucks a year. So like your regular uh, tenant policies, which called an HO4 renter's insurance costs about 20 bucks a month from State Farm and Allstate, right? And that's only if you're living there full-time as a renter. At a thousand bucks a year, we're about 80 bucks a month, right? And so that's giving you those commercial enhancements that are going to protect you and your business and your landlord if a short-term rental guest is injured or hurt at the property that you're doing arbitrage. In terms of I rent out, I go on a, a trip every year to Europe for 60 days. And during that 60 day period, I short-term rent my house because I just like having people there. Um, again, the business activity exclusions found in the homeowner's insurance, if that is your primary residence, which in that example it would be, profit motive doesn't matter again. Mm -hmm. so, so you're kind of playing with fire thinking you might, be, you might be covered. Now, what we see a lot of homeowners in that situation do, the, some people will buy our policy just because they like the enhanced coverage, regardless of the you know, additional costs, they just feel better. That's great, that's cool. Yeah, we love that. Uh, some people go with supplemental policies that are the pay by the night insurances with limited coverage for guest cause damage and additional liability. You know, they can run anywhere from, you know, eight to $20 a night, depending on who you go with. Um, and so some people go that way to supplement. What the insurance market did in uh, 2018, and again, back to ISO, ISO is the one who standardizes the insurance form languages. They came out with a series of endorsements for home sharing activities, all right? So if it's your primary house and you're renting out the in-law apartment in the basement, proper insurance can insure you, will insure you as a primary home and all of your things and all of your stuff, just like your regular homeowners does, as well as cover you for the short-term rental exposure and that, and that facet of the property. Or you can get what's called a home sharing host activities endorsement on your regular home policy. And that defines that one must be your residence premises, so your primary home, and then the second thing that it does is it redefines the business activity exclusion to not include short-term renting through a hosting platform like the Airbnbs and VRPOs and booking.com, whatever you're using. What they don't do is they don't add coverage, right? So your, your coverage for damage caused by a guest is still uh, typically excluded. Some of these endorsements will add a little bit of coverage $2,500 in coverage or upwards of 10,000. I think Allstate probably has the best home sharing endorsement with a $10,000 uh, limit for damage caused by a guest. Uh, you, you don't necessarily get the off-premises liability or coverage for amenities. And if you have limitations on dog bites, like you're still limited by that in the contract. So it's not really adding a whole lot of coverage. You're just eliminating that business activity exclusion. So if you live in the property full-time, they're, they're in the basement, separate entrance, no shared spaces. You can get proper insurance or you can get the home sharing endorsement. You had mentioned an ADU. 
Correct. So yeah. What AD, if I had an ADU? Yeah. So ADU is is fine with those endorsements as long as it is physically attached to the main house. If you have a detached ADU, backyard cottage or a converted detached garage, you got to be careful with the home sharing endorsements because they still might define that business activity in other structures is still excluded, right? So you gotta be mindful of that. And that's where it's super important to, to even reach out to like our office just to verify that, you know, just, I want you, I wanna get a quote and I wanna review and, and I'll make my decision. In those situations with the detached uh, structure on your property, you live in the main house and then you rent out the, the detached structure we'll just insure the detached structure. I don't have to replace your entire insurance package. There's no point in me insuring your primary house at twice the premium for the same coverage. It doesn't make any sense. And we, we're not gonna cram that down anybody's throat. I'm say, dude, just keep State Farm on the main house. You have this business activity and other structures exclusion. So insure the other structure with us, depending on you know how much insured value you want is probably gonna be a thousand to $1,500 a year, depending on insured value. Um, and now you've just not only supplemented that gap, but you're better protecting yourself uh, against liability as well. Makes complete sense. Do a lot of the national providers actually kind of have the inclusion of for, you know, you renting out a room inside your property, inside not, the main premise? Not every Is carrier. Is that uncommon? Yeah, not every carrier has adopted the home sharing endorsement. Um, so I know Travelers has it. I think Safeco has it. I know Allstate has it. I have yet to see one with State Farm. We're just talking retail carriers, you know, the big names. Um, Liberty Mutual, I'm pretty confident they still have theirs, right? Um, so you'll just, it all depends on who you insure with and just ask your agent um, if they have a home sharing endorsement to add to your policy, if that's the route you want to go. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. Always smart to call your agent first uh, and go from there. Couple of questions that we got from Twitter. I, I like this one, so I'm gonna ask it. Uh, this one came from T.S. Johnston on Twitter. He, his question was, how, how are a lot of the very unique short-term rentals getting insurance? You know, the tree houses, the giant potatoes, the hobbit houses, et cetera. Are they, yeah. depending on air cover or can you, if you have like a unique type of asset, can you get that insured through um, a, a proper like short-term rental insurance provider? Yeah, a lot of the retail carriers are gonna stay away from those because they're not a traditional structure. Right. And so it, it does become a bit more complicated. Uh, we take a lot of pride in our underwriting and our ability to uh, be able to ensure those types of risks. We have a, a number of tree houses and unique structures. I have um, actually I have a client out here in Montana who took an old flatbed truck from their farm. It's like a big, like, <laughs> something foot flatbed and they pulled the motor out of it and they they like built a deck around it the thing's really cool and then it's basically got a house built on top of this old farm truck um so yeah we can ensure unique structures as long as we can get it to fit in our box because one thing about our underwriting is you know we're not we underwrite very heavy but we underwrite very heavy on these properties whether it's a single family home or or a beautiful tree house or a potato uh, to <laughs> help help you mitigate risk right so if you're building a tree house the state doesn't require you to follow international residential code because it's not a residential property but you need to from a liability standpoint so we're still going to ask you to put in handrails where handrails are needed and guardrails and 
you need to have smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detection and, and fire extinguishers and, and all of that stuff, even in these unique structures uh, from a risk mitigation standpoint. What I try yeah. to tell everybody is if you the biggest thing to take away from this conversation for any insurance, I, it doesn't matter if you buy proper or if you go somewhere else, it's, it's a concept that I push out there through the, this type of education called reasonable means of defense. Okay. So you can just put your property on Airbnb and not do anything and do it for 20 years and nothing happens. That's awesome. I mean, good for you. Or you put it on Airbnb and a month later, you're, you're facing down the barrel of a million dollar liability claim. So you need to be thinking about reasonable means of defense. And what that means is, is taking the necessary steps to one, not only protect your property, but protect your guests, but also giving your insurance provider a leg to stand on to defend you against a liability claim. So if you don't have handrails on, a, on steps that are you know 10 steps leading up to your house or an elevated deck in the backyard that's 40 inches off the ground and you don't have a guardrail, if somebody falls off of that and gets hurt, there is no reasonable means of defense. They're going to sue for a million dollars and they're going to get a million dollars. So yeah. Absolutely makes sense. To go back to that prior question on the potatoes uh, <laughs> and those some of the unique homes, um, we did have a question from one of the listeners here uh, that, that that's, I think, related. Uh, their question was, do policies like this cover recreational vehicles like campers? Uh, they have one that they use permanently as a permanently placed short-term rental, but it does not sit on the foundation. So do recreational vehicles like campers, can they be covered by this type of policy? We can do it. So there's an exclusion and because we sell a home policy, right? So still think of this as a homeowner's insurance. Home insurance has an exclusion for mobile equipment. And so we have to be able, you need to give us reasonable means uh, or reasonable proof for us to send to the underwriter that this is no longer mobile equipment, right? You've, you, there's, there's a facet of deconstruction that has to happen before somebody can just hook a truck up to it and take off with it. Mm-hmm. So I have a client with a number of Airstreams out in Washington and basically what they've done is they've bought these, these parcels, right? These, you know, 10,000 uh, square foot lots. And they built like a shed roof, parked the Airstream underneath it. They have beautiful deck built on it with like a pergola and lights. There's a hot tub on the deck. And then they pour, poured concrete and put two steel posts right in front of the hitch. And so that's something that I can take to my underwriter and say, it's no longer mobile. Good luck. Um, and, and then we'll ensure that. We're not going to ensure we get a lot of requests, especially this time of year, um, where people are renting out a spot, a camp spot at a marina for the summer, and they just park their fifth wheel or their motor home and then put it on Airbnb. And yeah, you might have a skirt around it, but I could just hook my truck up to it and take it. Those are not things that we're going to ensure because it's still technically mobile equipment. So it has to be relatively permanent to some extent for us to do it. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. A couple of uh, other questions that we got from Twitter, and I'll uh, jump into questions that our attendees have. Please continue sending those in. The first question from Twitter comes from Chris. Um, How about anything involving uh, pet coverage with short-term rental insurance, like uh, dog biting on the property? Is Mm -hmm. that covered usually, or is that something that needs to be purchased separately? It's dependent carrier to carrier. We have no limitation on animal or pet liability, whereas a lot of companies are going to have a limitation on breeds. So if you are a pet friendly property, I highly encourage you to have a conversation with us because if you're pet friendly, P 
people are bringing their dogs and it could be a pit bull or Rottweiler or one of these excluded breeds and other insurance where we don't have that limitation. The other issue with animal and pet liability, primarily dog bites, um, is that most of our dog bite claims are not from pet friendly properties. They're actually dog bites that happen inside the community where the guest is bit. And so that could be they went out for a walk and the neighbor's dog jumped the fence and bites them. Uh, that's the one we're currently dealing with right now. And, and they just decide to sue everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. one, out of, one out of five liability claims filed in the U.S. is a dog bite. And it's almost a billion dollars a year in settlements for dog bite claims. So it is a big thing, right? Even if you're not a pet friendly property, I mean, somebody could sneak a dog in. We see that to those comments all the time on the social, on Facebook groups and stuff that somebody snuck a dog in and created a mess. So, you know, you still need to be mindful of that exposure. It's out there. You're not immune to it just because you're not a pet friendly property. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, another Twitter question, but I have a couple here that are, that are related to the loss of use coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, this Twitter question comes from luxury vacation rental guy on Twitter. Uh, his question says, I have a loss of insurance in case of fire flood, but find out recently after a flood that it only covered the mortgage payment, not the actual loss of rent. Is yeah. there a better loss, loss of use coverage I could get for future instances to ensure I get compensated for actual loss of rent? Yeah, it um, it depends on the flood, right? So if it was like, if you had a FEMA flood insurance policy and it was like a rising river, they're they're not going to pay you very much, if anything. They'll, I mean, they might even barely cover your mortgage. If it's like one of these frozen frozen water pipe claims that we've been dealing with the last couple of years, like Texas was really bad the other year. Um, the northeast right, Austin, has been, yep. <laughs> yeah, and the <laughs> northeast is going through it right now, um, where. Uh, basically your loss of use coverage or loss of rent coverage is again, fair market value. So it's not really going to pay all that much. Loss of business income is the best coverage. So if you want to make sure that you are covered for the limit of insurance paying dollar for dollar on your nights rented, that's where you need to really investigate converting to more of a commercial style policy like proper insurance, because you're going to get paid net revenue from us. You're not going to get paid, uh, I'm sorry, gross revenue. You're going to get paid gross revenue from proper, not net, and not just what could also be uh, defined as extra expense. So, right. you know, there's, it, it, it would really be beneficial for, for that person to reach out to us and send us their current insurance policy. And we'll do a full cover to cover review of what they have um, and what that language means and how it's defining. So you can better understand uh, what you currently have versus what other options are out there for you. Yeah, got it. Uh, staying on that kind of loss of, of income, or loss of uh, rent coverage, what, uh, how, do you, how do you calculate that if I've only had my property for a couple of months up in life? And this is a question we got from one of the attendees today. If it's only up, if only rented it out for two months and a tree fell on it, how yeah. do you calculate the loss of income? Yeah, is that so based on projections, historical results. How, yeah, how so does that? So if you have future bookings booked, that's part of it. And that's again, dollar for dollar. Now, anything outside of that, we're gonna use our database uh, with comparable properties in the area. We're gonna use data providers like you guys, um, you know, and, and yes, some of your competitors to Rabu to figure out what the average occupancy rate, average nightly rate is for that. Let's say it was a three bedroom home. 
right? And so if we come up and find, okay, average occupancy in this market is 73% at $315 a night on average, then that's what we're going to end up you know, offering from a settlement standpoint, because you don't have a history of bookings. Now, if you have a, a two, three, four, five-year history of bookings, we want to see everything. Send the whole thing to my claims team, and we're going to pay you what you are supposed to make, right? Subject to your limits of insurance, of course. So if, if you make if you have a history that shows in July you make ten thousand dollars because you're in a beach property and that's that's when you make you know that's a big month for you, and then in August you use the property for that thirty days personally every year, we're going to pay you for the lost income in July, but you don't have any lost income in August because that's when you personally use the right. property. So we'll look at your calendar of bookings, um, and then we'll we'll use all the available data resources to come up with a fair number for everybody. We did that in the Gatlinburg, Tennessee fires for a gentleman who had three cabins, literally like two or three weeks after he insured with us, they burnt down in the Gatlinburg fire. Right. Um, he had zero rental history, but he had $36,000 limit of insurance on each of them. And we ended up paying, I think it came out at that point in time, this was back in 16, 17, it was like 23 or $2,400 a month average per property. He never rented a day and he still got that benefit. That's great. It's obviously uh, lets you sleep better at night uh, yeah. for foreseen circumstances like that. A couple of many specific questions uh, that we've gotten here through through the chat. Marguerite asks, what kind of security is needed around a pool to, I guess, to, to qualify for insurance? Yeah. Uh, so you need to follow your local state requirements. Like if they require you to have a self-locking fence, you need to do that. Um, it's not something that we actually require to be a client. What we require in our underwriting is that you have death markers, you have rescue equipment, and you have signage. So those are the three primary things you need to have at your pool. And uh, that's, again, reasonable means of defense, right? If you have rescue equipment, signage, and death markers, and somebody drowns in the pool, we have a reasonable means of defense to help you out through that situation. Mm -hmm. If you don't have those items, it becomes very difficult to try and lessen the claim or get the claim totally thrown out of, of court. Got it. And then HB Warren asked about golf carts. If you have golf carts at the property, uh, how, how should you be thinking about that, that people can rent? Yeah. So our policy, we actually enhance the liability to state if the golf cart is not required to be licensed and insured through the state, um, it's financial compulsory law for automobiles, uh, then we would cover it for liability. But if you are in a community or an area that requires you to license the golf cart for road use, you need a separate insurance policy to cover that golf cart. Okay. A couple more questions. One's piggybacking on the uh, pool question. Uh, this one's by Nancy. Uh, what about a riverfront property? How, how does that kind of come into your underwriting, uh, that aspect of it? Really, any waterfront property. Yeah, yeah. So any waterfront property, or if you have a pond on the property, even if you have a babbling brook that only gets 10 inches deep, right? Um, you need to have something. Again, reasonable means of defense. So if you're a riverfront, you should have signage, and maybe you have signage that says no swimming, and that's fine. Have a no swimming sign and make sure it's in your rental agreement and your description that you're not allowed to swim in the in the river. But most riverfront properties are gonna allow people to wade you know, let you have an access point. So we want signage. We want signage that says use at your own risk, right? We want rescue equipment. And if you have a riverfront property, you should get an NRS river throw rope 
because if you throw a buoy out in the river and they don't catch it, it's gone. So the, the river throw ropes are great. We have them in all of our all of our rafts out here in Montana. Uh, you know, most of my office is fly fishermen, so we you have those for safety. Um, and then you need to have some language in your rental agreement that's you know use at your own risk, you know waiver of liability type stuff, um, things like that. And that goes for any any water feature um, other than like a koi pond, you know, or a landscape feature. But yeah, if you have like a big pond or uh, your ocean front or lake front, and you, you're the one that manages the access to it, then you need to have that appropriate signage. If you do not manage the access, you, let's say you live in a neighborhood and there's a path that goes to a community beach, you don't have to do anything. It's not your responsibility, um, to put up signage and rescue equipment. Got it. Uh, on hot tubs, is that our hot tubs? Is there anything unique to hot tubs? Uh, Betsy's asking about those. We uh, just asked really in line. Yeah, from, from our standpoint, from the insurance, we just ask that uh, it is cleaned and inspected on a routine basis. And again, that you have use at your own risk language in, in your house rules. To go a step beyond, you probably should have locking, locking lids for it. You shouldn't have it pushed up against the edge of a steep drop-off, you know, things like that. You can manage your risk uh, by just making simple adjustments to where you have it located and do you have a locking cover and things like that to prevent things. But yeah, just make sure you clean it because hot tub folliculitis can be deadly. Um, that was in the news not that long ago about right. a claim like that. We're dealing with three of those right now, uh, hot tub folliculitis. So just make sure you're cleaning them routinely so people don't get ill. Got it. I know we only have three minutes left. I have a couple more questions I want to ask you. And thanks again, everybody, for joining. Um, two questions are really HOA related um, that, that have come in uh, while we've been on this call. What if the HOA uh, decides to make some repairs, some major repairs that impact your ability to rent the property out that for whatever reason were not known to you? Uh, can that be covered by the, the loss of uh, revenue insurance? It has to be. It has to be a covered cause of loss that happened during the term of the policy. So regardless if it's proper or anybody else, there's, there's two types of assessments with condos and HOAs. You have special assessment and loss assessment. Special assessment is maintenance and general repairs, and that's just shared by the community and no insurance is gonna cover it. But then you have loss assessment and loss assessment is there was a hailstorm and it damaged the roof. Now everybody has to share in fixing the roof and we have loss assessment coverage. Every condo policy has loss assessment protection to cover your share of the HOA deductible and loss of business income, but it has to be, there has to be the covered cause of loss, right? Um, you know, they can't just say, hey, we're gonna paint the lobby and shut it down and now nobody can access. Like that's, that's just not something that's gonna be covered by anybody. Makes sense. I know we have a lot more questions coming in. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time left um, to cover them. I do want to ask one more because I think this is interesting. Um, interesting one is the same question I have. So I'm going to be a little bit selective here, but do any insurers offer a policy for guests uh, similar to what Verbo offers through, through CSA to guests? Uh, this particular attendee uh, would like to eventually get off the OTAs, the online travel agencies, but would want to uh, offer policies to guests so that they can get insurance themselves. Yeah, yeah. So the CSA is going to be tr mostly travel insurance for the most part. And so if you're getting off the OTA, you should still offer some concept of travel insurance, whether you still use CSA or you use AIG Travel or Red Sky. There's so many different travel insurance providers that you can link up with on your own website. 
But the big thing comes down to guest cause damage. Supplemental insurance is by booking or by night. And we do have a sister company called Waivo, W-A-I-V-O. And Waivo does by booking guest damage waivers. And so um, it's fairly inexpensive. It's paid for by the guests. You just bake it into one of your fees. Um, it helps you eliminate security deposits. Um, you don't have any guest interaction if you need to file a claim. Uh, they turn claims around in as, in as little as uh, 48 hours. So if you have two or more properties in your portfolio and you're going to go to a direct booking model, you can implement with our sister company, Wavo, cover what would traditionally be sub-deductible items. Maybe you go with a $5,000 uh, damage waiver per booking and you can upcharge that to the guest. So instead of charging a $1,000 security deposit, maybe you charge $99 uh, per booking for a damage waiver and whatever the spread is between the premium due to Wavo, let's just say it was 30 bucks, and the $99 you charge, you get to keep that as additional revenue. Love it. Uh, it looks like Brendan agrees. He, he, he says Wavo rock. So Wavo rocks. I appreciate Love that. Uh, appreciate that. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Uh, everyone, thanks for attending. I know there's a lot of questions we didn't get to. Um, to make everyone's life easier, we're going to follow up after this webinar with, uh, with an email from Nicole and our team that's going to give you guys uh, actually an opportunity to schedule a free consultation to talk to the proper team. Uh, so uh, please utilize that to answer any additional questions you guys may have. Uh, and again, thank you for joining um, us today and um, we'll see you next month. Thanks so much for tuning in to Short-Term Rental Investing 101. Hope you learned a lot about why short-term rental insurance is worth considering. I certainly did. As always, remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app and social media accounts tagged in the show notes below. And please leave us a review if you enjoyed the show. Until next time, cheers.